So before we talk about some of the things that God might have for us today, I think it's always important to understand what was going on then, 2,000 years ago. Um, this was obviously written to some people who lived in a place called Thessalonica. Thessalonica a, was a city in northern Greece, and Paul visited there uh, along with his buddies um, Silas and Timothy during his second missionary journey. And uh, this story is found in Acts 17. Um, we won't go there, but I'll just kind of tell you the story. So in Acts 17, we find out that, that Paul gets there, and for three consecutive Sabbaths, he goes into the synagogue, and he, he's invited to speak, and he shares one message. Um, the listeners there, mostly Jewish folks, they, they grew up knowing that one day a Messiah would come. From the time they were kids, they heard the stories that one day a Messiah would come. And Paul had uh, a surprise for them. Uh, the Messiah has come. Uh, his name was Jesus, and he lived this beautiful, compelling life. He died this horrific death on the cross, carried out. It's one of the things that gets him in trouble. Carried out by his fellow countrymen and the Romans. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and he is with the Father. And um, he shares this message for three weeks, and some people believe. Some people believe, and they trust Jesus with their lives and give him their allegiance. And a church is, is formed, and it meets in this, the house of a, a guy named Jason. Um, they meet together for several weeks. This wasn't, he wasn't there a, a really long time. You'll, you'll hear that in a second. But over that time, he began to see that God was forming this new community to himself. Well, as was often the case, um, there were Jewish leaders that didn't like this. One, you didn't tell them that they missed the biggest thing in their lives, right? Who were you with the audacity of this guy to say that they had missed the Messiah? That was a big deal. They didn't like that. They also were just jealous of the fact that Paul had crowds, right? People were following him, and they didn't like it. And so they needed to get rid of him. And you know how they did it? They brought politics into it. They stirred up this mob one day, and they said to the mob, these men are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, they didn't care about Caesar that much. They just knew that this would be the way that they could get rid of Paul. Sounds familiar, right? Um, unfortunately, they were successful, and Paul and his companions were forced to leave. Uh, sometime time later, Paul gets word that the persecution that was beginning to start, it didn't stop with his leaving. It actually intensified, and this young church was suffering. They were facing persecution, and they were suffering, and he longed to be with them because he loved them. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Jamin was in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter 2, it talks about him, he, he calls himself a mother. Later on, he calls himself a father. Um, Paul saw himself as a parent to these people, and he loved them so much. He was so proud of who they were becoming, and he hated to see them suffer. He hated to see this persecution happening, and he wanted to go to them, but he couldn't. And so he did the next best thing. He sent Timothy to, uh, to go be with them. And uh, next thing you know, a little more time passes, and Paul's in Corinth, and Timothy comes back. And Timothy has some really good news. Not only were the Thessalonians... Um, they weren't simply surviving, they were thriving. They were doing well. They were standing uh, firm and faithful under um, opposition, under persecution, in the midst of suffering, pain and suffering. They were doing well. And as, as Timothy was making his way from Thessalonica to, 
to Corinth, he was sharing their story everywhere he went. And all of these other places where there were these young fledgling churches, they were being encouraged by this story. And so Paul hears this, and you just think about, if you can imagine the joy that he felt, that God had not left these people. He was present with them, and they were doing well. And so he decides to write a letter to them. In chapters 1 through 3, it's just encouragement. It's, he wants to remind them of who they were before, in, before Jesus invaded their, their space. He wants to remind them of what Jesus had done in their lives, in their hearts, that they were new creations, that they were different. And then he wants to remind them that it worked. Like this new heart, this new life was bearing fruit. And not only there in Thessalonica, but he wanted them to know, like people are hearing your story and it's encouraging them. And he loved sharing this. And then in chapters four and five, he wants to answer some of the questions that they have. And one of the, the main question was, um, what happens when a person dies? Uh, now, just upon just hearing that, what we read a minute ago, you might think that's just some philosophical debate. We have those, right? That's a, that's a big question. Um, but it, it was way, way deeper, way more personal than that because they, they had suffered loss. And I'm guessing that some of that loss meant death, that under persecution that some people in the church had died had given their lives as martyrs for the gospel. And they wanted to know, is that it for them? Is there anything else? Will we see them again? And this is just conjecture, but I like to just kind of enter the story and, and wonder sometimes. But I wonder if this was one of those places where Paul, you know, he was run out of town before he was ready. And I wonder if he was like, yeah, I didn't get to that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big piece of our theology and I failed to get to it but let me tell you it now I said um, Jesus is going to come back one day and the dead are going to be resurrected and we're all going to be together one day um, uh, in in the message in chapter four it says uh, it's going to be this huge family reunion and he wanted to let them know that there was hope and that death did not have the last word and he wanted them to be encouraged by this and you know most of the time I you know we don't we don't suffer persecution that way um I haven't suffered a great deal of loss, and so this is not something that I think about a lot. But I know there are some of you here that have faced loss. Death, sadness, grief, pain, and um, just as it was for the Thessalonians, I hope it will be encouragement to you. My, uh, my grandfather passed away, though, a week ago, last Sunday morning, and um, last Wednesday we went for his funeral, and um, when the funeral began, small town, um, the, this curtain drew close, and they invited the family behind the curtain for just a little private moment. And my grandmother, who was married to my grandfather for 73 years, um, went to that casket and placed her hand on his hand for one last time. And then she turned to us, and she said, he's not here. And I don't know if in that moment that was a reminder for her or a reminder for us. But I knew in that moment that, boy, there is a void in her life at this moment. And there's going to be pain and grief for a long time. But I knew in that moment also that she has hope that death does not have the last word. And that she will reunite with him at some point. She'll be with him again. 
And I was grateful to know that she had that hope. And I was grateful that I had that hope. That for, for those who belong to God, death does not have the last word. I hope that's encouraging to you. So, one of the things that you see in all of Paul's letters is that he always, it's customary practice for him to answer the questions that they had, but to also um, answer the questions that they needed to have, that they needed to be asking, right? You recognize that in Paul's writing? Here's the other question you need to be asking. And what he wanted them to know was that this hope of eternal life ought to impact our lives today. It ought to have an impact today. And so the rest of this passage, he's shifting gears and talking about what it looks like today. So I want to read just part of this again, starting in verse 5. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So, as I spent time with this text, especially over the last week, I was thinking about death more than normal just because of my grandfather's death. But over the last couple of weeks as I was looking at this text, I was also just thinking about our world, our nation, and where we have division and just everything that's been going on. Um, boy, for me, the last two weeks have been so long, so long. And even thinking about this year, what, a, what an intense and challenging year 2020 has been for so many of us. I, I have this feeling that we will look back on this year and realize that we were not ourselves. And I think that's, that's just very, um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, for a lot of us, there's been more fear and frustration and loss and loneliness than, than normal. And that impacts us. So this passage... Um, has been words that I needed to hear. And there's three words in particular that have kind of captured my attention. And it's the words asleep, awake, and sober. Asleep, awake, and sober. So, asleep. So, uh, in the Greek, the word asleep normally means asleep, right? Um, it's your little Greek lesson. Sometimes it doesn't mean exactly asleep. He's not saying sleep is bad um, here because he says, let us not be like others who are asleep. He means something more figurative. So when I hear this word, to be asleep, I think about going through the motions or in a fog. You recognize that? You're just kind of walking around, but you're just in a fog. Um, I think about the word escape, that you're escaping. I found that in 2020 to be more prevalent in all of us. We're escaping through food or drink or shopping or social media or Netflix. We're just looking for something to numb us, right? I think about the word complacence, complacency. To be asleep is to be complacent. I think, here's a phrase for you, 
inhaling the cultural air that we breathe without even thinking about it. The cultural air that we breathe today is very much a toxic thing. And we can just, left to our own devices, we will just, just keep on breathing it. Now you contrast this with the word awake. And again, it's not being physically awake. It's being alert. It's being aware of your surroundings that perhaps spending three hours on Facebook isn't the best thing for you or continuing to watch the news or read the news or whatever it is that maybe that's not leading to the life that you're hoping for. It's being on guard, though not out of fear. It's fighting conformity to the pattern of this world. You think about Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Or Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. To me, this word awake is very proactive. It's very proactive. It's about doing something rather than having things done to me. It's a proactive stance. Same with this final word, sober. The opposite of sober is drunk, right? When I think about the word drunk, um, I think about not being in control, right? Something else is in control of me in that moment. And so to be sober is you are, you're not captive by a substance or a person or a belief or an emotion. You're clear-headed. You're in control. Again, very active. So Paul is saying don't be asleep because you're not in darkness. You're in light. You're, you're, you're children of light. So don't be asleep. Be awake and be sober. So I want you to think about these words. What does it mean for your life to be marked by the words awake and sober rather than asleep? How do you respond to the challenges and toxicity around you? Where do you engage? Where do you pull back, stay silent? And, and how in the world do you find peace in the midst of it? That's a question I've been thinking about a lot. Paul continues, he says, Since we belong to the day, and since we are going to choose to be awake and sober, we put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So Paul has mentioned faith, hope, and love earlier in this letter in chapter 1 where he said, We remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows how powerful faith, hope, and love are. I love this idea of hope, of salvation as a helmet that is protecting me, and I can have hope in that. Um, at, at the end of the day, the hope that's found in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and eventual return ought to have an impact in my everyday life. That's what Paul's saying. Yet he knows how quickly that hope can disappear and we can be caught up in things that maybe they matter, maybe they don't, but maybe they don't lead to real life. I love that this passage ends with what is my favorite uh, Greek word, and it's the word zoe, and it means life. Um, he says, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. You know, John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Um, I like to think about you have a glass, and you pour water, cool, refreshing water in it all the way to the top, 
and then you pour in a little bit more. That's, have you had a time in your life where you felt that way, where you were overflowing, where you couldn't contain what he was doing? Maybe you, you have that image in your, in your mind, but maybe you'd also say, yeah, I feel a little empty though right now. I feel a little empty. I feel like there's just some drops there and I'm thirsty. And, and when you think of your life, the word asleep might, if you're honest, paint a better picture than awake and sober. Um, I've, I've gone back and forth. I, f- I feel a little bit like Stacy did last week where she said, I'm not sure where all this is going. That's another thing that happens when you haven't done this in a while. Um, I, I haven't been exactly sure how, to, how I wanted to end this, and I had another plan going into about two hours ago. Um, and I wanna, wanted to kind of, sh- I felt like I needed to shift gears for this. Um, so I am very much into putting into practice my faith. Um, that if Jesus is bringing life, and there's so many things working against that life inside of me and outside of me that, that I need to be okay trying some things and seeing if they work, putting into practice, experimenting, different practices, different whatever it is that work for me. And so what I want to do is just share a few things that I've been learning about even before thinking in terms of awake versus asleep, but helping me live in a place of being awake and sober rather than asleep. And, and I preface this uh, by saying um, I, Enneagram's been really helpful, and I most identify as an Enneagram 7, which means, one, um, I'm in the thinking triad, which means I am in my head all the time. I like my head. I like, I like my thoughts. And I go there, and I stay there, which means that I'm not always that in touch with my feelings or what's going on in my body. And so... I say that, and I also, being a seven, I'm, I have the need to avoid pain, and so I'm really good. I am, I'm, a, I'm a pro all-star at finding the silver lining and uh, glass half full and optimism. So I say all that because uh, these things may not work for you, um, may not work for any of you. I, I hope what you do get out of me sharing this is just the process of asking the questions, having the hope that Jesus wants me to live life maybe differently than I sometimes am, and he wants to teach me how to do that. That's hope, and it's intention, it's vision, it's all of those things. So um, so just three, three things I'm going to share with you. Then we will be done, and Mandy can go watch The Crown. Number one, um, inputs matter. Uh, what I mean by inputs is there are more inputs than we can keep up with. There's more today than there's ever been throughout history Things coming at us. We have more access to news. We have more access to connecting. We have more access than ever. Inputs are all around. Our, our days are filled with inputs. Some inputs are better than others, though, at leading to life. Zoe, right? We get that. Some things you put into your mind and your heart and your soul, and they leave you feeling asleep, complacent, going through the motions. Other inputs leave you fully alive. They leave you wanting more of life. Um, and we have to choose carefully and wisely what we're allowing in. Um, so, and that's different for all of us. 
I imagine there's some similarities um, when it comes to social media, when it comes to news, when it comes to some of this that maybe we all struggle with spending too much time on those. I know I do. Um, one of the gifts I think God gave us in 2020 was an amazing spring and what's been an amazing fall. Um, and so for me, that meant spending a lot of time outdoors. That's an input. You may not think of it as an input, but when I am outside, I become a little more alive. When I'm breathing in um, God's nature, when I'm feeling a breeze on my face, reading a book, um, having conversation with friends, which has been tough in 2020, right? But there are certain things, but inputs matter. Second is reflection matters. Um, when we have so many inputs, it's, it's hard to be still and actually allow the good ones to actually sink in because there's more inputs that want our attention, right? There's so much to do. We are active creatures, and being still is hard. I don't care what your introvert, extrovert, whatever it is, it's, it's difficult to be still and shut off the noise and reflect. Um, we're used to processing with people, a lot of us, and that is definitely trickier these days. So how do we process what we're thinking, what we're feeling? Um, for me, journaling has always been a big discipline for me, um, something that when I can put to pen and paper what, what I'm thinking and feeling, I usually walk away a little bit better. What it's really good for me, though, is looking back on a year ago or five years ago and seeing the challenges that I was up against, that in that moment God was with me and he helped me get through it. And I can go to that and remind myself, um, recall how God worked then, not that it'll always work the same way, but it reminds me that God's faithful and he will be present no matter what the outcome is. That is a powerful thing for me to be still and reflect and remind myself. And then finally, um, the third one is gratitude matters. So uh, I think the two emotions that mess us up the most are fear and anger. And I don't know about you, but I think this election season is so marked by anger. And I think all of 2020 is marked by fear. Do you remember those early days of quarantine? What an ordeal it was to go to the grocery store? Do you remember the fear that you felt? The fear of getting sick? Not knowing, not knowing what that was going to be like? Or a family member getting sick? The fear of losing your job? The fear of the economy just crashing? Um, the, the fear of being alone, of, of a loss of community, being isolated. Like we're, we're not that far from that. And maybe I, it's gotten better in some ways, but that is heavy. Well, one thing I've learned is that you can't be angry and grateful at the same time. And you can't be fearful and grateful at the same time. Gratitude is an antidote to both. And I don't want to like make that more simple than it is. Don't hear that. But there is something that we can do in being in a state of awake and sober and alert. Something proactive in counting your blessings, naming them one by one, in, in thinking about the, the ways that God has, 
has blessed you and helped you and just keep track of that. November is the month we normally practice that, right? Of gratitude and thanksgiving. And I have found nothing stronger in my life than gratitude in, in raising my heart and my mind to a different place. There's nothing magic about it. The, my, my challenges don't go away, but, but they're reinterpreted. Do you resonate with that? And I don't want to dismiss the challenges that, that some of us here have. I don't want to do that. It's the last thing I want to do. But Paul ends this, and it's where I want to end it. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Um, there is a need for us to do this, to remind each other, because there are times when um, I don't want to go to my journal. There are times when I, I kind of like to stick, stay in that angry place. Um, even though it's, I don't like it, there's something that I just, I'm there, and I need others to remind me of these things um, because I can't remember them on my own sometimes. So um, I hope that's helpful. I, I want to pray for us, and then we'll move into our time of communion. So God, um, we are in a challenging season, and I pray that more than anything that we would know your presence. God, I pray that, um, and even in, in today's, uh, in this morning's time of communion and worship, I pray that you are near us. And I pray that those of us who, it's been a while since we have felt your nearness, I pray that you would come close today. More than anything else I've said today, I, I, the nearness of God is our good. And to know that you're near is the best thing we could have. And so, above all, I pray for that today. And um, I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us with these words, that we might live differently uh, for your glory, for our good. Um, and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.